Hello and welcome to Film Kid Asks, the podcast where I ask questions to working professionals in the film industry from the perspective of someone just getting started. My name is Jordan and today I am joined by visual effects artists from projects like Snow White and the Huntsman, Orphan Black, and recently Snowpiercer, Jeff Scott. Thank you so much for coming on the show and be sure to tune in on Netflix to see Snowpiercer, which just had its season finale air. So you went to the International Academy of Design to study your craft. How was your experience at school? Um, well, this is something that I always wanted to do since I was four and saw Star Wars, basically. So instead of reading the little engine I could, I was figuring out how blue screens worked and model photography and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it was pretty natural at school. I mean, the school itself wasn't very good. Uh, it was at a time when basically there was about two or three schools offering animation and computer animation then suddenly switch went off a whole slew of schools basically started saying we're, we're teaching computer animation and they were terrible but i knew enough about what i was doing and i was driven enough that i went in and you know spent 12 hours a day in, in the labs and just worked you know I, I used their incredibly expensive machines and didn't get much from the staff and faculty. Fair. So how did you kind of fill in the gaps of that education afterwards? Because obviously visual technology and computers are developing and programs are developing at such a fast rate. So how do you keep up with that new technology and make sure that you kind of are at the top of your game? Uh, to be honest, I mean, there's courses online. I'm continuously taking courses. I'm always, you know, reading tutorials, going through what other people are publishing, reading articles, trying to understand what they mean, you know, when it all shifts. And to be honest, because I'm a visual effects supervisor, I'm sort of, um, I don't do a lot of the actual art anymore. I do very little of it. I'm more of a creative director. You know, 50% of my time is done with clients and then 50% of my time is actually just directing artists and studios and, and whatnot. That being said, I still love what I do, so that's why I'm always reading and tooling around and playing with new software and learning it so that then I can go, okay, I know what I need to know. And then nobody can come back and say, well, you know, it's all changed, Jeff, since you did it. So people like saying that. They really do. So I'm like, no, that's bullshit. Yeah, no, I mean, you got to keep on top of it and, um, yeah. and keep learning. That's kind of the fun of it. So obviously visual effects work is pretty broad. What did you learn from working on simulator rides and building your reel early on? Oh, <laughs> okay. So, I mean, honestly, we'd had a real bust in the industry when I first started working. We'd gone from, you know, studios popping up everywhere and then all of a sudden studios collapsed. Uh, Warner Digital shut down, Boss Films, like, all these guys that were previously special effects companies that had tried to make the transition to digital. Digital domain almost collapsed the first time. They've collapsed about three or four times. It's a very volatile field as far as being economically stable. So what I learned was that I will do anything for a paycheck and pay rent. And that's what I got on to uh, doing simulator rides. Fair. Um, so... How closely do you work with the camera department in order to make sure that the design of the shots supports the effects that you do in post-production? Oh, really closely. So uh, depending on if it's episodic work, like television, like something like Garfield Black, I will often sit and work with the directors specifically and you know, we design out and we lay out storyboards. Um, I'll then take those boards and with the director and we'll present to the cinematographer. 
they'll often come in and have a suggestion or a tweak. And then again, because in particular a show like Orphan Black is very specific camera. We used a, a device called the Super Techno Dolly. So it was a 13 foot arm. Its maximum reach was 13 and a half feet. It could lay down on about 60 feet of track. We needed to make sure that it was where it needed to be very specifically, both in time and space. And the actors had to be able to do it. And we needed to get the shots right. And so once we designed those, then the actors in the camera department would actually run through the paces. Uh, and then, you know, we'd get what we need. We'd, we'd always tweak it on the fly, but we always started with the big plan on paper first. Currently on the show I'm on, which is Snowpiercer, uh, same thing, sit there, design boards with the director, storyboard artist. We actually would bring in the cinematographer in the boarding session. Most times they just play on their phones and go, and then eventually they'll go over and go, yeah, 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 that's cool, that's fine. And then we, we'd sit there and work through it. And then they relay their plan to their team. Um, and then I basically tell them, hey, you know, you can't do that. We actually have to do it this way and explain why. And they're always accommodating because at the end of the day, if it's not done to how we need it to be done, it's incredibly expensive to fix or it's unusable. So right. then it's just a waste. So, I mean, obviously you've talked about boarding it, but what does that relationship look like in prep? Like, how do you design the shots to make sure that obviously the cinematographer is able to tell the story in the way that they want to, while still obviously making sure that it is usable and that your team is getting what they need? Um, well, I don't generally give a lot of restrictions. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, there's nothing worse than a uh, visual effects supervisor saying, you got to lock the camera. This is an old notion that has been the bane of my entire career. I'm pretty free and clear. To be honest, I, some cinematographers have trouble seeing, you know, into the blue screen. And so they'll like, you know, they stop their focus there. And I'm like, well, no, 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 no. We need to rack to infinity because they're looking at the giant monster on the horizon. You have to do this. So treat it like it's there. You just have to pretend, set up a mark and whatnot. So there's a lot of that constant reminding. But to be honest, for the most part, I'd like to think I'm pretty good to work with and, and let them do stuff. Very rarely will I say, well, this won't work at all. But yeah, there was a quote uh, from you know the visual effects supervisor, or the animation supervisor, Roger Rabbit. And he said, basically, if anybody tells you that you can't move the camera, you can't move the object, they're either lazy or incompetent or both. I heard that quote back in the 80s and it's, it's stuck with me. So obviously you do a lot of prep work to make sure that you are getting what you need. Um, just because I, I don't actually know, are you on set or is there a representative on set to make sure that, you know, everyone's doing what they need to technically so that you're able to like just supervising and making sure everyone's kind of in the know and getting the information from your end? Yeah. Depending on the size uh, and, and scale of the show, I prefer to always be on set. That's not always possible. Uh, so Snowpiercer season one, the plan was to run each block separately, but because we were sort of, you know, behind in schedule and set building and whatnot, we ended up starting to stack blocks. So every two episodes is considered a block. At one point we were cross shooting eight episodes. So um, I had an onset supervisor who would run with one unit and I would take the smaller unit because then that would free me up for meetings for the next block. Uh, something like Orphan Black, I was on set every day that visual effects were required. Which, to be honest, I mean, by the end of it, I was on set, you know, five days a week, over five days shoot. Um, we get a lot of people relying on us.
cost. There's a lot of fix it in post because it is not as great of an expense as it was 20 years ago. And uh, occasionally I wear my fix it on set shirts to set. Nobody's really <laughs> appreciative about that, but it, I think it's fucking hilarious. So. Yeah, I mean, fix it in post is not always a, a fun thing to hear. So yeah, no. say it right back. Why not? Yeah. Um, so how closely do you work with special effects artists on the projects when there is special effects involved that might need to work concurrently with visual effects? Oh, very close, very close. There's always this strange dynamic with special effects and visual effects. Um, we start off the show sort of eyeballing each other and squaring each other up and checking each other out. And then by the end of it, we're usually really good friends. And in fact, actually the special effects supervisor on Snowpiercer, uh, by the end of it, we like went out and bought motorcycles on the same day together and did all you know kinds of stupid boy stuff. But yeah, as far as the technical aspect of it, I mean, usually there's X amount they can do just due to the physical limitations and safety limitations. Uh, again, I'm, I'll use Snowpiercer as an example. Um, we had metal framed wooden boxes, which is basically our sets, you know. And then every time somebody was like, yeah, and then somebody will come out with a flamethrower and, and the special effects guy would be like, no, you're in a contained wooden box full of paper. Everyone's going to die, you know. Uh, and then we change it or like if there was ever need of like a scene where there's welding and again, still not safe. We go, okay, well, what can you do? They're like, well, we can do a light and I can shoot an element. And I'm like, okay, well, let's do that. And so we trade back and forth, and, you know, like a lot of our blowing snow in Snowpiercer is soap bubbles because that looks great. But ultimately I need to enhance most of the, the shots just because there's only so many stages, you know, and then they have to bring in these large Ritter fans and then, Audio complains because they can't record any of the dialogue because they've got, you know, an aircraft van sitting four feet from the actor with blowing snow. But yeah, we work closely with that. For sure. I mean, that makes sense. Um, but I do always find the kind of interplay of different departments very interesting in those dynamics. And I figured that obviously you guys would have to work together. So I was curious about what that relationship looked like. But you've worked in both film and television. So how does the process change for you in both of these different mediums? Um, it really doesn't. I'm a huge fan of if I'm working on the project, if it's a feature or if it's television, you get everything I can give you. Some people, you know, sometimes might feel that like, oh, well, it's just TV or oh, it's just a commercial or whatever. I'm like, no, no. If I've taken a job, it's because I want to work on the job and, and the job gets done. You're always up against air dates, you know, or release dates. Um, certain television, the air dates can get really sort of compressed and condensed on you. But even on a long feature, you, there's still crunch time at the end. The difference is you have all these little micro crunch times in series work, and then you just have a big long crunch time on feature. There's a couple of features I worked on where I didn't go home for like three months. Just ate bad pizza and cold coffee. I had no idea what time of day it was. And, Sounds fun. Um, oh, it's amazing. Totally recommend it. So kind of going off of that, how do you achieve a similar high standard of visual excellence with the time and budget pressures that come with episodic television versus something, because obviously you're going to spend your time differently. I feel like on some, you know, some of the big budget features that you might have done, obviously your team would probably reflect that, um, having a larger size. So how does the way that you spend your time differ in these different kind of projects? Well, again, with episodic television, I try and design sequences and shots so that by the end of it, 
you're sort of like, you have a lot more going on. But even then, like, you know, with Snowpiercer, quite fortunate, because we started filming in 2018, sorry, what year, 2020, yeah, okay. So we started filming summer of 2018. Now there was already a pilot that had been shot, but we can't speak of. We reshot the pilot starting in 2018, and then we had a full year of post on it because it only premiered in 2020. So we can run it a little bit more like a micro feature, you know, where we can stack stuff, but also we try and design it so that the first episode there was, there's only like a half dozen shots. By the end of it, there are a lot more, like a lot, a lot more. So it becomes this sort of scaling ramp. Um, again, for something like Orphan Black, the first season we had 13 episodes, we had just over 100 shots. I think by the last episode of the last season, we had that in an episode. So you start to be able to scale your visual effects because you compressed, you've taken the knowledge of everything you've learned and you just, you know, it starts growing exponentially. Like the last episode of each season would have, like the first episode of the following season would have as many as the last episode did and then we just keep growing. And then we go, okay, but that's it. We're done, right? Like, we're, we, this is the max we can do. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then we'd adjust our budgets accordingly and go, okay, now we can fit it in. And then we continue to do more because basically people lie. Right. Well, I know John uh, was, he always had an idea for a really cool sequence at the end of each season. I, uh, I remember that vividly from watching the show. So I'm sure that's something that you probably accounted for eventually, but that was probably a lot of fun, but also kind of a, a nerve wracking thing because uh, he would always try to think outside the box and push you guys. So yeah, so I'm sure it was quite the thing to account for. Yeah. yeah. So kind of switching gears, you also worked in video games. What were some of the differences in video games uh, versus live action, visual effects work and designing? And what did you learn from the video games that you've applied to your other work? So um, I went into, I worked in video games for about three and a half years. And I worked on one game in particular, which was called Penland Sword. I was getting a little burnt out from film on television and needed to have a change of pace, change of scene. Um, I had been a visual effects supervisor. And then I was like, I just want to be an artist again. So I became a you know, senior environment artist. So it was all about world building. And I mean, I learned that, I mean, it's very similar. It's incredibly similar. You know, instead of hitting render, you sort of hit export to game. And I always sort of thought of it as a, so much of a microcosm on set where you have actors who act and you have hair, makeup, and you know, but these are just, you know, these are the game cutters, the game designers, the character artists. It's very much the same. I thought it was going to be this whole sort of black box voodoo. And I was going to, I'm like, oh, my, you know, after a month, I'm like, oh, it's pretty much the same. The nice thing about working in games where I did in the UK was instead of the sort of 12, 16 hour days we do in visual effects and set work, it was a 10 hour day. 5.30, the office was empty and you went home. But yeah, that was about it. It was an enjoyable time. I learned I enjoyed making things from that. And so when my wife and I moved back here and I, I got back into supervising and visual effects, um, I started a small video game company and... Uh, it was actually two friends that she had introduced me to, my wife had introduced me to, and so we, we made apps uh, for a couple of years. And we actually got nominated for Video Game of the Year for one of our games up against Assassin's Creed, Pirate One, and Watch Dogs. So that was kind of cool. It's 
little hobby thing we did, as you can know. That's incredible. But, yeah, made no money off of it whatsoever. <laughs> None. There's no money in indie gaming. So. But I'm sure it was it was a cool experience nonetheless. Oh, it was. It that's, was. that's really and impressive. I, and I got some life on so, what are some of the important things for directors, producers, actors, and cinematographers to understand when working on projects that are visual effects dependent or with a heavy visual effects focus, just so that they're able to achieve everything they need to and uh, be mindful of your process? Um, I find a lot of people have worked with bad people in the past. And so they have this impression of what visual effects is, you know, whether it's rotoscoping is expensive or well, if I cover it in green screen, isn't it main? It's just gone. It's like, you know, there's no, there's a lot more to it than that. But, you know, you can move the camera. It doesn't need to be this locked off thing. Um, again, it's trying to get writers to turn the camera around to see the thing. Because a lot of times I find, especially in episodic television, writers write out visual effects. Like they want to play it on a reaction. It's like, no, no, you can show the reaction and then cut to the thing that they're actually seeing. You're allowed to do that now. I mean, it's not an inexpensive process, but it's still an achievable process. It's no longer a million dollars a minute the way it used to be in Jurassic Park. So, yeah, I mean, that is good to know. And I think that obviously, like, it might be bad people, or it might just be kind of the environment of like people not understanding how times have changed. That I feel like it's probably in writers' instincts or directors' instincts to save the production as much money as possible, but maybe at the cost of something really cool. So I think that's that's awesome that you obviously come to it with the willingness and the ingenuity to try to make it happen no matter what. That's awesome. So what excites you the most when you're starting a new project? Something new. Something I haven't done before. Because of Orphan Black, which was a fantastic experience. And to be honest, there was a little like sort of reunion get together last summer and forgot how much I missed those people. I mean, in particular, like I've known some of the cast for years, I mean, before they were actors. But after a while, everybody kept coming to me to do clone stuff. Like, you're the clone guy. You can do clone stuff. Let's do clone stuff. And I was like, okay. Yeah. After like quite literally half a decade, I was like, I want to do something not that, you know, because it's, I mean, essentially it's, it's one of the oldest visual effects in the book. It's a split screen. Right. Now, everything we did on Orphan Black was a complex split screen moving and whatnot. But, you know, again, loving Snowpiercer. But I would love to work on anything not a train next project for a while, you know? The project sure. that I slip in between seasons, you know, I would love to work on a, I don't know, a blimp in the Sahara or something. <laughs> so. <laughs> something very different. So, kind of going off of that, what makes you gravitate towards certain projects over others? Uh, a script. A really good script um, or if I like the people who are doing it it's really about that years ago I worked on a little independent movie called The Witch and I had read the script I think two years before we even started working on it. I said this is a really good script we should fight to get on this we can do a lot of cool stuff without being over the top and it was funny because when we finally got on that project we were supposed to do four visual effect shots and we did like 134 by the time we were done that's crazy. So, yeah. But yeah, no, it's a good script. If I can visualize something cool, then that gets me excited. And then, you know, when you meet the people at you sort of gel. Again, for Orphan Black, read the script and we immediately started like throwing around ideas. And we, let's say it was the Monday, Tuesday, we got the script and we had our first meeting on the Thursday, Friday. We'd already put together a couple of shots where we're like, oh yeah. And this, this part of the thing, the person can grab the person by the neck and throw them up against the wall. And 
And they're like, well, how'd you guys do this? So I'm like, man, we're wizards, you know? <laughs> there is definitely a certain mystique to visual effects that I think is, uh, it doesn't have a lot of visibility. You guys are kind of magicians. But kind of the opposite. What are some of the most challenging parts of your job? Um, there are times when you get a shot and you think this is a perfect shot. There is no better way to do this shot. This is masterful and I love it. And then you present it to the clients and then they're like, we hate it and we don't like it at all. And it happens a lot. It's still honestly one of the toughest part of the job. And then it's basically trying to pull the thread on the sweater of why they don't like it without completely unraveling everything you've done. And it's sort of walking through that minefield where you're like, okay, well, what don't you like about it? Do you truly hate it? And it's sort of pulling out from them what they don't like about it and going, oh, okay, no problem. I can fix that. Right. But it is a punch in the gut when they hear that. Nah. You start to hear that and you're like, oh God, they don't like it. Oh. And then afterwards they turn and they're like, oh, well, no, if you can just make a couple of those trees in the background red, that literally happened to me. I'm like, that's it? <laughs> everything else is fine you want more variants in the trees not a problem yeah i'm sure that's a relief to hear um after such an emotional uh yeah. punch to the gut for sure so i've been keeping it pretty broad but to get a little bit more specific projects like orphan black have a very a visual style that's definitely more naturalistic but projects like Snow White and the Huntsman embrace a very fantastical kind of feel how does your approach change to these different kinds of projects um, it's sort of about being just a bit of a jack of all trades, you know. So for Snow and the Huntsman, I was in charge of the Black Knight shattering sequence. I also did on set for sort of the beach charge toward the castle. Um, for that show, I was the visual effects supervisor, but for a VFX studio as opposed to the overall. And so you just sort of sit there and you shift gears. I mean, I have very broad interests. I spend too much time reading books and too much time on the internet. I can usually speak on anything. So yeah, it was just with the Death Knight shattering and just said, okay, what does it need to look like? I hired a couple of designers I've worked with in the past and we started working through visual presentations on how it was going to look. And we went through all the motions and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, no, we don't like it don't hate that and you just again it's one of those things you pull it back because at one point i don't know if you've seen that sequence but it's it's right at the beginning they wanted the black knights to shatter but go through all three stages of matter so they shatter solid then it liquefies then it turns into a gaseous vapor and so we'd done all this like stuff and basically just looked like a giant mess like it was too convoluted and they're like look look it's not you it's me. And then you're like, are you breaking up with me? What's going on? You know, you get all emotional. No, and then they're like, no, you've done exactly what we asked for, but it's a mess. I'm like, okay, good. And then we, within a week, we just turned around the shot with just the solid shatter. And they're like, oh, this is perfect. And so, yeah, again, it's being able to switch gears is great and not being set in a way. Again, I do have a drive to change things up continuously, which is why, you know, I love the experience of Four from Black with John Fawcett and Grant Manson. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Do I want to do clones again? No, no. So obviously you've kind of spoken a few times of this where you've had to shift gears after you've done quite a bit of work. So how much do you think work that you guys do, because obviously unlike certain things, you know, where you can plan a camera angle, it's still in your imagination, but you know generally what it's going to look like in reality. But a lot of the work that you do, it's all kind of in your imagination and maybe people aren't quite on the same page, even though they want a similar thing. So how much work do you guys do? Do you think that gets thrown away or modified or, you know? Ooh, 
we do a lot of work that gets shifted and altered as we go. I would say we try and mitigate a lot of that from happening, you know, so we start with a storyboard and then we roll it into an animatic. The animatic, you know, we, we go, look, this is basic camera blocking, you know, you have it with the camera, you have it with that. Like, love it, love it, love it. And then we'll start an animation pass where you get the refined aspects of that done. And then we go to uh, lighting and then compositing. So it's a very staged step process. That being said, there have been times when you do get it all the way down and they're like, no. And then it's like, okay. And then we got to figure out, you know, budgetarily if we can make that work. Uh, and then we roll it back. The only time I really think of something as genuinely throwaway is when trailer season. Basically when, when Comic-Con season is on us. Because, you know, there's always like, we need these three shots for a trailer. And you're like, we got three weeks. We're going to hammer them through the pipeline. They're going to look passable. And then they're going to look completely different for the final Right. And we do that all the time. And so it's not too big. But again, pretty much every trailer you've ever watched is almost just full of unfinished shots but that are completely different by the final iteration. I mean, that makes sense because obviously the timelines are completely different for those things. You're not going to get the final product in yeah. the trailer. That does check out. Um, so before I open this up to my classmates, I do have one more question. And that is, what advice do you have for people just starting out now that would like to be in your position one day? Um, be open to learning. Always keep up learning. Never think you know more than anyone else. Um, be willing to work on anything to cut your teeth, even if it's simulator rides. Every little bit helps. And um, I think, you know, as long as you learn hubris and have a constant joy for what you do, you can do it. That's awesome. All right. Now I'm going to open it up to a few of my friends to ask some questions. Uh, my question is, as a student who's like working on smaller projects, how early should we bring the person to discuss and do those things? And how early should a visual effects specialist come in? Uh, at the beginning. I would go so far as to say, like, when you're thinking of bringing in a cinematographer and a production designer, a lot of what we do covers all of that. We help and we cross over every department, whether it be wardrobe, makeup. I've had to do hair fix. The number of times... I had to do a dye job on 36 shots in The Witch because her roots were growing in and she was, you know, there was no hair dye back in 1664. So really early stage, we can help across the board um, and we can help sort of, again, guide because a lot of people have uh, misconceptions about what it is we do. Thank you. Um, so I was wondering what you kind of thought about maybe like the frontier of special and visual effects and like maybe the future of it. I know like, I'm not sure if you've um, heard about maybe what the Mandalorian did for their sets. The baby, like the, baby Yoda show. Yeah, the Baby Yoda show, right. Yes. That's the one. Um, yeah. Just like some of the advancements in like visual effects, do you feel like visual effects will creep their way into production and become part of the set even more? Or what's your kind of take? Yeah, no, no, I, the 100%. I mean, that's awesome. it. Like I, so that's actually, I wish I'd thought of that when you were asking the question. So one of the big tape acts I, I had actually from working in video games was how powerful at the time we were using Unreal Engine 3, I think, um, when we were starting to work on our second game. And, you know, then we were looking at the spatial, uh, the Wiimote with the little attachment was spatially aware. 
and you could literally tap that onto a side of a camera that then fed into your computer. And then you're like, look, you're moving through real world space while somebody's in a motocap suit. And then we're doing a live composite through Unreal. And then, you know, three years later, the Avatar, not the Avatar, but the system that they used to film Avatar came out and they're like, oh, this cost a million dollars. I'm like, just need to slap a Wiimote on the side of a camera. You're good. It didn't cost a million dollars. But yeah, I think that is going to definitely be, well, it's the present, but I, I hope it becomes more of the future. But that, back to the earlier question, is sort of why you need us in early. Because your visual effects supervisor becomes as important or almost becomes the production designer. Because they're the ones building all the sets. They're designing the spaceships. They're building the worlds in which the people are crawling through. Um, and that's why there's an older film a couple years ago. He's not a visual effects artist supervisor, but there was a concept artist, uh, Crash McCreary. He became the production designer for a film called Rango. Because basically he designed everything. And they're like, look, it's a fully CG world. You're the production designer. You're not just a character designer or a concept artist, you know. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really hope that that becomes more and more the sort of virtual set. And again, you know, because I understand 3D and whether it's, you know, rendered through Maya or RenderMan or any of the other umpteen renders are, or it's put through Unreal or, you know, I mean, it's the present. It's so exciting to think about. Thank you. Yeah. I was just sort of wondering, I know you were talking earlier about how when you work with special and visual effects together, like sometimes safety, like the fire with the wooden set can be how you decide what to do. But if you have a shot that's like a big visual effects shot that has like um, a background and like elements that an actor will interact with, how do you decide how much has to be there on set and how much you do in post? Um, well, I mean, that is basically, again, if the actor interacts with it, I'd like to have some representation from special effects. So if there's snow, a person's walking through, lay me a path of snow for them to walk through. If there is water that they're interacting with, give me a bit of water and then I'll extend it out. You know, the general rule of thumb is if they need to touch it or it needs to touch them, let's have it there. If it's too dangerous to touch them, if you don't want to set your actor on fire, well then, okay, that's fine. We understand that. So then we'll do it. It sort of becomes this ongoing conversational back and forth. So a lot of times, uh, instead of having a pure visual effects meeting, so, you know, in a production, you have your production meeting, and then you, you break off and have your departmental meetings, your individual departmental meetings based on that. I actually like to have an interdepartmental meeting before I have the pure visual effects, where I can sit down with stunts, and special effects and we can sit there and figure out who's what you know and then occasionally props if it's a props heavy you know where I'm adding a blade onto something or there's a big fight and we need to go okay you know like we almost have a secondary production meeting episode eight of Snowpiercer which aired last Sunday we did um, this big battle scene and then so all of a sudden we had a production meeting and then we had to do a meeting with me with props because we were doing visual effects enhanced prop. We, need, we were cutting off people's hands, so I need special effects makeup. Special effects was throwing gas grenades, you know, and so on and so on. So we had this basically almost a full second meeting with, you know, half the departments there. And then on the day, certain things weren't working. You know, we realized, oh, all our planning, we have 100 dead extras lying on the floor. And then people from a second story throwing smoke bombs. 
on those people that are basically metal soup cans and would hurt people. So we sat there and said, on the day we had to go, all right, well, fuck it. You don't throw anything and then it becomes a full CG thing. And it's you constantly are trying to find a balance. I used to often refer to it as VFX Kung Fu. You sort of like just flow with whatever situation is there. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. All right. So thank you so much to those of you who asked questions. Um, I did ask you, Jeff, to prepare five film recommendations. And I did ask to have a focus on visual effects because I think that would be really interesting and what you think is inspirational or good or, you know, kind of revolutionary, whatever it is. Um, So I'd love to hear what you came up with as far as recommendations and why you chose those. Okay. First one is Empire Strikes Back. Basically, Star Wars got me into this. I was four years old, saw Star Wars, and Empire Strikes Back is the best of the original trilogy. Again, it's all special effects. There's very few optical effects because that's pre-evolution of of visual effects, which was photochemical-based compositing. It's insane what they did back then. I mean, now it's nothing. You know, it's it's absolutely, you know, but it was incredible for the time. Yeah, I just, I love that movie. I can watch that endlessly. Um, Then I have to say it's a really recent one, but Avengers Endgame. I watched it twice this Sunday. We were sort of at the cottage. It was lazy Sunday day kind of thing. Watched it you know, in the morning with the boys. Watched it again in the evening with the adults. And there is not a frame in that entire film that isn't visually affected. Even the boring stuff, I guarantee you. It is a giant of visual effects. It is insane. I would love to do a Marvel movie one day looking at that. But it would probably kill me. It's huge. It's colossal. It's, I, yeah. Again, like I said, I watched it twice in a day, just going, Jesus Christ. Anyways, next one is Blade Runner. Huge, hugely... Um, which one? The, the, the only, there's only one. Uh, oh, you mean which cut? Oh, God, yes. I mean... Uh, I meant 2048 or the... No, original. no, no, 2048's a, it's a fan film. It's, I loved it. It was great, but it was, you know... All right. <laughs> the first, first time I watched 2048, I was in an altered state. And then when I watched it straight, I was really disappointed because the story I was making up in my head was way better. Anyways, the original uh, Ridley Scott, Blade Runner, uh, I mean, just to get the hellscape, like the cityscape, they created a room that would kill you if you walked into it. It was full of so many toxic chemicals. And what you don't realize is most of those cityscapes are like, you know, tiny brass cutouts. You know, they're just silhouettes. And, and they layered so many of them. It's such a visually deep movie that it's incredible. I find a lot of times people don't put enough into the environments because they just kind of go, oh, yeah, no, it's good enough. And looking back at stuff that was done, you know, optically for inspiration is, you know, is always the way to go forward for that. Um, so with respects to visual effects films, I also really, really love, and it's more of how smart the use of visual effects are in it, but um, Fight Club. I love Fight Club. You know, Fincher uh, used to be a, a map painter. Uh, he worked on Return of the Jedi, and I had the great pleasure of working with him on uh, Panic Room. And... Uh, I was blown away when I saw Fight Club because of just the level and the use of visual effects. And it's the invisible visual effects in it that are are more impressive. So that one really sits well with me. It holds a lot. Um, I don't actually have a fifth film, though. It's kind of one of those, like, it's like Sophie's Choice. Except not a child and really important and Nazis, but it's uh, you know you just like where do you pick? 
one that that means so much though okay i mean we can end it at four or you can just throw out uh one of your favorites whether it be visual effects heavy or not oh well um okay it's visual and visual effects i guess i really really loved um forgot the name of it inception sorry uh, and it's silly, and it's like a teenager writing a deep movie, um, you know, and they're like, oh, I made this really deep movie, but it's what they do with just the visuals in general. And again, how they bridge special effects and visual effects. Like that hallway turning scene is is incredible. Mm-hmm. But they built a giant fuck-off hallway set, like, you know, and they moved it through three-dimensional Rotated space. it on a massive drill, basically. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's no, it's, it's incredible, but it is a bit of a silly film. Like it's, you know, like I it said, it can be but, silly and good. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> I like watching that movie still. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. Uh, obviously, I think visual effects is something that doesn't have the same kind of visibility as some other roles in film that are a bit more. I feel like post-production in general just doesn't have the same visibility. So it was really nice talking to you and getting to know a little bit more about your process and your workflow and what you do, but also creatively what you think might happen in the future and, and personal taste things. Uh, it was really interesting talking with you and thanks to everyone who asked questions. That's all for this episode of Film Kid Asks. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram or join our Facebook group. New episodes come out every Saturday. <laughs>